Tonight, the topic I want to share about is compassion. Just sharing some thoughts, just reminding us all, really, about compassion. Generally, it's a good thing. (laughs) So, I've been saying a lot, I I don't know if anyone else has been saying it, that mindfulness doesn't care, right? Which I mean... It's really a very freeing, uh, when we realize that whatever's arising, mindfulness can be with without being damaged or stained, without preference, without making a big story of me around anything. That's incredibly liberating when we not just intellectually know it, but when we experience it. And that also, though, to our intellectual minds that sense, that understanding of, in some ways, nothing matters. Everything matters, but nothing matters. Mindfulness doesn't care. We think, hmm, I'm not sure that's really the wisdom I signed up for. Mindfulness doesn't care. I don't care. The heart-mind of no clinging, which is really one of the Buddha's descriptions of freedom, isn't really so juicy when we think about it, which is good. Juicy isn't particularly helpful, but the idea of mindfulness doesn't care can um, lead our associations into a kind of a, a sense of disconnect, right? A kind of like this not caring that has a tinge of uh, distance, a tinge of, or more than a tinge of passivity, or of um, nothing matters of nihilism. And of course, I'm sure you all know that the freedom of the heart and mind that's not clinging, the mindfulness that doesn't care, isn't about taking us out of the world of connection or out of the world of... I don't want to use the word caring again, but that we're really of caring for other beings. But it's a different kind of caring. The, the, the phrase that's been going through my mind for the last three days is that just that one line from the poem by T.S. Eliot from Ash Wednesday where he says, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. And I really feel like that's, to me, uh, a great pithy description of the not caring is really the essence of understanding cellularly emptiness. That no experience, as I was saying the other night, as Guy said, no experience can be held to be existing separately is about me or mine. Mindfulness doesn't care, and so it can be present. We can be present with all things equally, but not equally disconnected, equally connected. And out of that lack of obsessive, exhausting, relentless self-referencing for every sense contact that arises, have you noticed that? (laughs) It's exhausting, isn't it? Totally exhausting. Every thing that happens has to refer back to me. It's sort of like, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, only it's more like two degrees of how many thoughts before it refers back to you. Not many, huh? It's fun. If you can laugh at it, it's fun. But mostly we're believing it. We're hating it or we're loving it or we're buying into it. It's exhausting. Don't believe me. Check it out. When our heart, our mind, when the energy of consciousness is not bound up in this relentless self-referencing, with mindfulness is equally, awareness is equally present with whatever's arising, resting at ease in whatever arises, then the natural uh, response of the awakened heart and mind, the appropriate response in the face of suffering is compassion. Because when we're not so concerned about me, me, me in that sense of separation, then when, when there is suffering or pain in ourselves or another, rather than 
the flinching back of, oh, no, I can't handle this, or this is wrong, or what's just, oh, there's presence. It's the natural response of the awakened mind and heart is to be present with whatever's happening. And if there's suffering, compassion is the natural response. So it's two sides of the awakened heart and mind, the non-clinging, the non-constructing about me, and that allows for the clear seeing of things as they are, and it's teach me to care and not to care. So the not caring is the emptiness, and the caring isn't a caring about me and you as what you mean to me, but the spontaneous, impersonal, but very tender caring for life as it presents itself. And because there's wisdom, and we're not blinded by our self-referencing, if there's something one can do to alleviate suffering, one tries to do it. Many, many times there's not something one can do, and one doesn't have to turn away or flinch back or say it's too unbearable, I can't fix this. It's one of the, um, one of the ways in our, in our daily life we... we Cultivate compassion, for sure. But one of the ways it gets confused, you know, the near enemy, you could say, of compassion is is maybe grief or pity or being overwhelmed. And before we get to that stage, often I find in myself, and someone was telling me they saw it in themselves the other day, really a lot of insight seeing this, that someone will be suffering and the impulse comes to do something about it. And it still might be a good thing to do. It might be a way you can help that person. But if you really look inside yourself, the impulse is one of aversion. It's too unpleasant to feel this discomfort, seeing you suffer, so let's, for God's sakes, fix it. There might be something useful to do. It isn't compassion. It isn't compassion. That's why the real, the depth, the natural, spontaneous depth of true compassion comes together with this wisdom of emptiness, this wisdom of awareness doesn't care. So sometimes when, when people say, how can I hold all the suffering in the world? I mean, we can't even imagine all the suffering in the world. How can I hold all my suffering? How can I hold the suffering of my friends? And exactly, that wording is exactly why we can't. We don't hold anything. And when we're, uh, as we are so often, in our unseen or familiar concept or limitation of me in my heart, and, oh, this is just too much to be with. Yes, sometimes that's our experience, of course. But when it's about me somehow holding, of course not. It's the I, that limitation of separation, that actually is in that moment the cause of the, the inability to be present. This isn't to judge or anything. It's just to explore and see how it works. Because when, when we're holding to me, when that, that limit of me, that creates immediately the sense of other. And then right away we have that duality and we can hold this much but not more. But we don't have to hold anything. Just as someone said to me, well, just let it pass through. Let it go through. The question, through what? Nothing. Nothing. Just passing through emptiness. But when we can't see with that vastness, even though we may um, act with as much caring as we can, and we still should act, you know, let's not wait till we're all arhats before we do anything, you know, wholesome or helpful for somebody. I'm not saying that. But just to realize when we're still in a moment of still... Uh, caught in the delusion of self or the resistance to pain or something, we'll do the best we can. And please, we do do the best we can. But we can't see clearly the whole situation because of being blinded by clinging to sense of self, by self-cherishing, to use, to use those. Those are kind of catchwords. Don't make it too heavy. So like this example I've used a few times that I heard on, on the radio a couple of years ago about some some footbridge, a new footbridge that had been built, I think it was over the Thames in London. And so when it opened, people were walking over and it was some big deal. And anyway, according to what I wrote down when I listened, it's one of those things when I write it down and then I read it, I think, I couldn't have heard that. That's too weird. But 
Anyway, so a few hundred people were walking over the bridge, and it started to shake. It started to sway to one side, which is very embarrassing for a newly built fancy bridge. So it was swaying. And so each person acted in you know, the most sensible thing to stop the swaying, which was to move to the other side. Of course, all 400 of them moved to the same other side. So that just made it sway even more the other way. So it's a kind of a sense, you know, we, we, we're doing the best we can, but we can't quite see past very completely this, you know, self-created boundary. And that's not a judgment. That's just to look and see the moments when that's not there. The spontaneous action, like you see a, a statue of, of Green Tara, a Tibetan statue, and she's one of the embodiments of compassion. And so in the statue, she's, she's, she's sitting in meditation. But the statue I have, her eyes are open, so there's this sense of you know, connectedness, which to me, the essence of compassion is wisdom and connectedness. And the one, one foot is always kind of up on a lotus petal like this, so that she's sitting at ease in meditation, but always about to get up and do what needs to be done. But not planning it out, just the spontaneous expression of wisdom and connectedness. That's how compassion shows up. So tonight I just want to talk about a little bit, hopefully, as um, we can explore this in our practice here, more than about action in the world, which is a whole other topic. But since we're in the middle of retreat, this is the way I want to talk about it tonight. So... Sometimes thinking of compassion is the natural result in a moment of the awakened heart and mind can be really inspirational. Sometimes not. Sometimes it can just feel like it's so far away. And I also know there's times we can turn anything against ourselves, right? If there's enough negativity and self-loathing in the mind. So we can turn the whole concept of compassion against ourselves, Have any of you ever done that? There's no way I could be compassionate. I want to be compassionate, but I'm just so selfish. So say you take what I said earlier of looking at how how many thoughts does it take before it gets back to me, whatever happens. And instead of laughing at it, you're having a bad day. So you look at that. In two thoughts, it's back to me. I am the most selfish, uncompassionate, self-centered person in this room, on the retreat, in the, on the planet. There's no way I could ever cultivate compassion. I came here to cultivate compassion, and instead these angry thoughts are coming up. I'm hopeless. It's horrible. And in fact, the longer I'm here, the more angry thoughts I'm noticing. <laughs> and if you come and tell us that, we'll say, oh, that's great. That means mindfulness is getting stronger, right? And you walk out and go, what a crock. These guys, will, <laughs> these guys will say anything to keep us going. Okay, sometimes, but I don't think we outright lie, right? Pretty much. <laughs> we want to keep you going, you know, past the hard pot, patches. But I think pretty much what we say, we think it's true. <laughs> So sometimes also, and these are all different things our minds can do, and we're not all doing all of it, but sometimes um, when we, we're cultivating Vipassana here, most of what we talk about is mindfulness and insight. And we, do, we have been doing um, loving-kindness practice once in the afternoon, and we'll be changing, we'll be starting with karuna, compassion practice, tomorrow. And I know for me, just by the nature of how the mind works, it's, it's easily can set up duality, right? Well, I'm doing wisdom practice, insight practice. What about compassion? Well, I don't know. I can't do them both at once. And so I do a little karuna. I do a little metta. Maybe be happy. Maybe be peaceful. But I really came here for insight. And, you know, and then Carol just said, if I really understand emptiness, then I'll have compassion. So let's get back to the insight, you know, push, push. And that's really where it's at. Or you could do it the other way around, too. It's all about metta and compassion and this other stuff. I don't know. Forget about it. If I open my heart completely, then wisdom will come. And make it like we're doing one or the other. And that can get confusing. And it's a kind of a completely unnecessary dualism. 
Sure, in terms of a specific practice, you're doing Vipassana or you're doing the form of metta or karuna practice, sure. But in the days here, in what you've been going through, just with the mindfulness practice, not really just, I mean, this is really quite profound. Panya or wisdom, there's times that that's really, it's like it it just feels like that's where the energy is, that's where the juice is. Not that you're having insights popping off every two seconds. I mean, I know you wish, but I don't mean that. But just the mind is more, it's more noticing how things change, or it's more noticing the cause and effect, or the first and second noble truth, or just investigating the five aggregates, or perception, or Vedana, or just in that modality, interest in what's happening. And when that's happening, everything's, everything's cool, right? That's when it's going good, when there's interest. What about those other times? Sometimes you have other times when it's not quite so interesting. When the suffering personality patterns emerge. Once in a while that happens, right? They show up. You notice them with mindfulness. They get stronger. You notice them with mindfulness, you get really caught. And then we start to just spiral, you know. Come in, I I was caught in this thing for three days, I couldn't be mindful. We get frustrated, we get lost in whether it's fear or aversion or self-judgment, or we get taken up by loneliness or we're fighting sleepiness. You You know all the different things, fill in the blanks. And isn't it easy at that time, somewhere in the back of the mind to think, Okay, they say I'm cultivating mindfulness through that. I'll, you know, I'll say fine. But really, we feel like we're marking time until the practice really starts clicking in again. Okay, so I'm being with self-loathing for three days. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. Okay, I'm mindful of it. Yeah, I I really see how that's cultivating mindfulness (laughs) and wisdom. I have a lot of faith in that. Thank God Aaron talked about faith because I really forgot why I was here at all. You know? And this happens over and over and over. And if we're just focused on insight in that way, if we've somehow put all our marbles into the idea of it's all about wisdom in that way, we really do feel like we're just marking time until the practice gets good again, until it reemerges again. You know, I think, well... I only have two more weeks and these are three lost days, you know? What am I going to do? Three lost days. Well, this is not marking time. Marking time would be if you get in your car, you go out, you have a pizza, and you go to the movies. I call that, okay, that is a lost day in terms of practice (laughs) and marking time. Yes, yes. So a lost day is possible. I remember... I don't think it was you, I don't think it was James. Years ago, at a three-month retreat, somebody was so caught up in the um, World Series that they went to a motel, you know, so they could watch it. I call that marking time. Howie. (laughs) Sorry, Howie, I didn't know it was you, and I didn't mean to bring up your name. But I'm sure he's not the only one who ever did that. Okay, that's not what I mean. But when you're hanging out with this other stuff and it's painful and you're suffering from it, but you're hanging with it, this is actually how compassion is being developed and cultivated in the moment. Compassion, I don't necessarily mean it as a huge heart-opening emotion. can be. It doesn't need to be. Compassion, really, one of the definitions is a the quivering of the heart in connection with pain, in connection with suffering. It's really that, just that sensitivity of awareness, of presence, of heart, that doesn't have to run away and doesn't meet the difficulty with aversion, with clinging with me. So just a moment, okay, self-loathing feels like this. You know, we keep saying that over and over. Give me a break. Self-loathing feels like this. But I'll try it because there's nothing else to do. Okay. And there's one moment 
And I don't mean the lights go off and you have a huge insight and you're overwhelmed with love for the world. Just a moment where there's no greed, no aversion, no referencing back to what is it me. Self-loathing feels like this. Just that sensitive presence for a moment. That's compassion. That's just the beginning of cultivating compassion. It's happening in the midst of our mindfulness practice. It's happening all the time. It's the furthest thing from marking time to really notice this. The Dalai Lama, in talking about compassion, and of course he's, you know, the um, reincarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion over, over, over. And just talking about it as tender heart, noble, awakened heart. And of course the the Tibetan tradition talks about compassion taken all the way to the intention of a bodhisattva intention of wanting to awaken not only for our own sake but in order to awaken others. But he talks about the cultivation of compassion. We don't just sit back and wait. And he says two things really happen with this. The first is how does it develop? Through deep insight into what suffering really is, the experience of suffering. And guess where we get that, folks? That arises as a stillness holiness by focusing on our own experience. Like Ajahn Sumedho often says, your own experience of suffering is enough to get enlightened with. We don't have to go looking for any extreme suffering. It finds you. It finds us. Our own suffering is enough to for compassion to develop with. And then, the Dalai Lama goes on, that the, the compassion as we learn to open into our own experience of suffering, the compassion strengthens into a sense of empathy and connectedness with the world, with all beings. And now in my language, I would say what's happening then is as there's that Mindfulness doesn't care. Awareness doesn't care. It's just present in that purity with suffering. Then that self-referencing, that prison of self-referencing isn't being created in that moment. And the sense of separate artificial boundaries isn't being created in that moment. And so then our own experience of suffering does broaden into a quite natural sense of empathy and connectedness with the world. And so really, really, we start here. We start where we are. You know, we don't have to go be, you know, working in uh, some NGO or living in the favela in Brazil in order to really prove that we're compassionate. And it can feel, when we talk about compassionate action in the world, which, as I said, I'm not talking about tonight so much. When we talk about compassion and our mind goes there, to this, this, our intellectual mind, to the suffering in the world, the immensity of it, how much am I doing? And then it can easily come back to, here I am, sitting on my butt, thinking about, you know, my knee hurts. And so, oh, I'm cultivating compassion, thinking about my knee, you know, and we can turn it into a real negativity, right? What am I doing? It's completely self-centered, blah, blah, blah. Notice that that's aversion. And really starting to explore and see if it's true what the Dalai Lama says, that how compassion does begin to develop is through learning to be with our own suffering, with wisdom, without um, pushing it away. That's why the difficult times in retreat are so important. As I said, our tendency to just wait the difficult times out to not realize that these are actually the difficult times in a retreat are like the jewels. We think the jewels are the big insights we have because they make us, I mean, they're great, we like them, they last two seconds and they're gone, right? (laughs) But the difficult times, when we're willing to really need it with presence, these are, is really where the jewel of understanding can arise and deepen. So just that willingness to bring the same quality of attention. The Dalai Lama, again, when he was asked one time about 
what looks like such a lack of compassion in human society, and what does he think about that? Because he always talks about we're really basic, our basic goodness. And he said, he said, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we tend to really embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state. I mean, just that we get really involved in it as an emotional state, fueling it or reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. So part of our practice here, in the difficult times, is by bringing this quality of pure, tender awareness, mindfulness, to the difficulty, your difficulty, we are reinforcing compassion, presence, acceptance. So why don't we do that more? Why do we have to talk about it so much? If it really is a natural result of wisdom, the natural expression of understanding, why is it so difficult for us at times to be present with our suffering? I mean, when we go, yeah, well, it hurts. I mean, who wants to be here where it hurts? Right, exactly. That's the deep, deep, deep conditioning. So I can't talk about compassion without talking about the first noble truth that the Buddha um, spoke of. So I just want to mention that briefly, because I feel really the deep-seated tendency we have, which has been talked about, I think, Pascal in this first talk, to move away from the unpleasant. We've talked about that a lot. You've all seen it, right? The body hurts, you can't get away from it, so we go into fantasy. Deep, deep conditioning. That, and we're sort of getting that it doesn't bring us happiness. But we're not really getting how being with suffering brings us happiness either, are we? It's kind of, okay, there's just not really another option. But Pema Chodron, I was listening to a talk she gave, and I like the uh, distinction she made, where we tend to talk when we're talking about compassion about life in retreat, about being with the difficult. And she said, what if we think about it as, take it away about learning to be with unpleasant or learning to be with suffering, but rather at some point we all come up against having to be together with that which we really don't want. And it's more that I don't want this to be happening. Rather than saying it's bad or even unpleasant, the more accurate um, way of talking about it, Peter Chodron is saying, is that we're with something we don't want. And that's not to blame, but that's to help us look back and see what's happening in the mind right now around this difficult experience that's creating the suffering, that's creating the difficult. So this is where I need to, to talk about the first noble truth. So as you know, I'm we will give a talk later, one of us, at some point, of all four noble truths. But you're aware of the first noble truth, right? You've all heard that, the first noble truth being dukkha. Now, often, that's translated as suffering. And one of the reasons I don't personally think that's such a good translation, especially into English anyway, I mean, that's all I know, is the connotations that it brings the first noble truth, when the Buddha talked about it, he said, it's to be understood. And as soon as we say suffering, unless you're in a really clear space, isn't it easy for just a little tinge of aversion to come in around that? Oh, the first noble truth of suffering. Great. Yeah. Right. Already we're not understanding it. Because that's not what he's saying. The first noble truth is to be understood. So, I mean, I could give a whole talk on it. I'm not going to do that. But the way Bhikkhu Bodhi, like one line to describe what the Buddha is saying is true in the first noble truth, is the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. That's Bhikkhu Bodhi's definition. It doesn't mean everything's horrible. There's plenty of beauty. There's plenty of pleasant feeling. And it changes, right? It's that it's basically unreliable, basically unsatisfactory. And why is that a problem? Then you get to the second noble truth. It's a problem only if we're clinging to it and trying to make it be satisfactory. 
if we're thinking, this shouldn't be happening. So that's where I want to go in terms of seeing how compassion develops and what gets in the way of compassion, what gets in the way of our being present with difficulty, whether it's physical pain, whether it's emotional unpleasantness, whether it's a loss, whether it's having to be together with what we don't like, whether it's having the pleasant go away. All these things happen, and that's just the way it is in this world. Again, it's not rocket science if we look around, just like when I talked about impermanence. It's like, it's obvious, except somehow it isn't. So in this of the first noble truth, on some um, very deeply conditioned place, not a place in the mind, but habit of mind, is the sense when on some, some pains we can be with, some difficulties, okay, we can be with, but the ones we all hit, in practice and in life, but let's stay here on retreat because it's kind of magnified when you're looking at it, is that thing of, this is wrong, right? This is bad. What did I do wrong for this to happen? It shouldn't be happening. We do that in life too, but particularly here. Often when you like your meditation and it changes, right? What did I do wrong? When the difficult stuff I was just talking about comes up, when you have to be with loneliness, when you have to be with despair, when you see old conditioning that's really painful, I think, well, I should be past this by now. Why is this coming up? What did I do wrong? I was so concentrated, and now this stuff is coming. It's all, as one yogi used to come and say to me, it's all going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. I have no clue what that means, or what a handbasket is. But... It gives you a sense. <laughs> and so, the first noble truth, the Buddhist, why did he say, of the four true things, if you understand these, you'll be awakened. He says, oh, there's a basic unsatisfactoriness running through life. He's not saying, okay, let's stop being happy, let's get really depressed, come on here. No, the understanding of it frees our hearts and minds. The understanding of the first noble truth takes us out of delusion, takes us out of a relationship to this basic unsatisfactoriness, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, change, difficult, takes us out of a relationship to that experience that's based in delusion and denial and confusion. That that's where our suffering comes from. And I think our deep, the reason that compassion develops from being with suffering, the reason we have to develop it, let me put it that way, is because our sort of knee-jerk reaction is, let's get out of here, you know, or something's wrong. And also, don't we often, maybe you don't, but I do, and I know I'm not the only one, often in times of suffering feel very, more isolated even than before, kind of alienated or shamed or something to hide. Or, you know, how come people often say, I look around and everyone else is sitting like a Buddha. And they even know it's not true, but everyone else is doing so well. And only I am so lost in, you know, fill in the blanks. And that's kind of how we feel. So that the, the difficulty, the suffering, in this case I'm using suffering as unpleasant, difficult experience, which is what compassion arises in connection with. The suffering uh, has the effect of increasing our sense of self-cherishing in a weird way, of limitation, of isolation, of aloneness. And it also strengthens the sense something is badly wrong. And on some subtle way, I mean, do you you ever find, I find this all the time in my practice, in meditation practice, even though I totally know better, somehow keep equating pleasant with right. And that's just what Buddha is saying, no, we don't understand. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the mind keeps changing every second. So it's to be understood this first noble truth, not to engender aversion, 
not to engender fear, not to serve as a further proof of our weird separateness, of something wrong with us, but it's rather uh, something that is a commonality of all beings. So when we open to a moment of real difficulty and the mind is totally present, the heart is really present, that's why it can open into a sense of connection with all beings, because all beings suffer. Ajahn Sumedho says he used to start talks he would give in Thailand with, welcome brothers and sisters in old age, disease, and death. (laughs) And we are all brothers and sisters. Sometimes we experience wonderful stuff. Sometimes we experience suffering. It takes turns. But it's really a way of opening into tenderness for all of us. But the delusion that comes when we don't really understand the first noble truth. And it's, it's a profound understanding, right? It's, it's, it's not simple. I'm not meaning to say it's simple. The delusion is rooted in the misunderstanding, as um, Joko Beck says, that somehow I can somehow hold myself separate from this painful and unwanted experience. You get a sense of that ever? Have you ever felt like that? If I could get it right, I could, I could watch it, but it's over there. And I'm over here. I don't have to really feel it. And if we do it right, we'll stop it. And even though you all know, we've said it a million times, and you even know it yourself, don't we often say, well, I was mindful of it, but it kept on happening. (laughs) Right? Somehow mindfulness means it should go away. The pleasant stuff we're mindful, it should keep happening. You don't say, oh, I was mindful, and it went away. The unpleasant stuff, no, we think mindfulness means it should go away. But no, it's just here with it. And it's such a deep habit that it leads into, um, we can't see clearly. We get, can get into real denial. But just this subtle aversion, I want to hold myself separate, means that in that moment, the, the mind, the conscious, the awareness, isn't just connecting completely with the experience. It's a little bit pulled away. And that delusion and that uh, aversion or ill will, as I said before, it colors the perception. And then there's no way we can accurately perceive what's going on. This is the Buddha. Again, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will and does not understand as it really is the escape from ill will, On that occasion, one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. We just can't see accurately, not even our own good. And so we can really get lost in thinking the further I get away from this unpleasant thing, the better it is for me. And not seeing that that's just strengthening the tendency of aversion and denial and separation and alienation and suffering. And it just can lead into like total denial. I think I mentioned it the other night because I love denial. I just love love it because it's such a powerful force. I read a book um, a few years ago called Unquiet Ghost about... um, the author went to Russia in the 1990s and was interviewing people that were still alive who had been part of the gulags under Stalin, which was, you know, 20, 40 million people that were in the gulags. I think 20 million people died. So, so many people were arrested. Uh, our, our family members were arrested for, you know, no reason. It was really like a reign of terror. And it was never talked about, of course, at the time because all you had to do was say one bad thing about Stalin, someone would report you that was it. You'd be in the gulag for 10 years. So he went back in, in Adam Hoxile, this was. He went in 1990 and was just talking to different people, you know, who were still alive, and they could talk about it at that point after the Soviet Union had kind of come apart. Anyway, it was a really interesting book, and in some ways it kind of almost seemed like a meditation on, on the power of denial in the mind to me. So one, one thing he quoted, um, Adam Huxley quoted um, 
George Orwell on what he called the courage of perception of what Orwell calls the power of facing unpleasant facts. Just, and it takes a lot of courage for us to face unpleasant facts on a moment-to-moment basis, just, just here in our practice. How one, one example of how that, um, how that played out under, in, the, in the period of Stalin, this is from the book, he said, and this is from talking to a lot of people, he said, the people who tried to avoid arrest, because people were arrested just all the time, by lying low, by moving from place to place, by kind of hiding out, they actually had a pretty good chance of success. Because he said the arresting mechanism was really strong, but the searching and finding people mechanism wasn't that strong. But, he said, people rarely tried to do that. Because despite mass arrests, almost everybody believed it won't happen to me. And he said that what he came, they believed it because people deny bad news because it implies worse news. If I'm about to be arrested knowing I did nothing, it means the whole system has gone mad. And so people just say, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. And so that sense of the fear, or sometimes our absolute inability to face unpleasant facts, really leads into this deep habit of just not recognizing accurately what's happening. And that's so poignant and sad because the accurate recognition, as we've been saying, is what frees our heart and mind from suffering. So can we find in ourselves a willingness, and this is something that, um, I think this is from Joko Beck too, I love this, this sentence. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? Again, just for a moment. Don't project it into the whole day, into your whole life, but just for a moment. If you're feeling sorrow or confusion or fear or pain, and your mind is going, no, what's wrong? Just can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? Just now. That is, in that moment, that attitude is the practice of compassion. We're cultivating compassion by how we meet each moment of experience. What arises in a moment in our practice, the result of all the previous conditions, you could say the vipaka, the comic result of all the previous conditions, in a way it's just arising. The present moment, comma, the present moment habit that's being created is how that particular experience is met in the mind. So that's not to scare you, that's to be encouraging. See, sure, sometimes we can see the habit of our mind, as I'm saying here with the denial, is to meet unpleasant experience with, I'm out of here. And that's feeding the habit of fear and aversion and denial. But every time we go, can I rest? Can I just find the willingness to rest? Or in the language we've been using, can I just meet this moment with kind awareness? That seems like nothing much, but that is changing the whole habit of your mind. That is an actual manifestation and cultivation and development of the attitude of wisdom and compassion. That's why these moments are so important. It doesn't feel like much, but it's huge. It's huge. And true, I think true compassion, karuna, really can only arise with connection. You know, it's not an idea. I mean, we can have the idea that can help us have the willingness to rest in this painful and confusing situation. The idea can guide us. But the actual spontaneous compassion that arises, it only really comes with connectedness. We're just willing to be fully present with this without having any other reference point or assumption, just for an instant, just for a moment. I want to give an example. This has kept going through my mind because this is a good example to me of how connection with a difficult, a painful moment led to compassion. But I'm I'm not 100% clear. 
I'm not sure that it actually conveys it, so I'm sorry if it doesn't convey it. But to me, it just happened recently, and it really did. When I was in uh, Burma last month, and we were visiting lots of, several of us uh, were visiting different places, offering some dana, some support that many friends have, had given to offer. And so we uh, had heard about uh, a school, a new school. The, many kids can't afford to go to the government schools. I mean, there's so many, it's unbelievable. And many nuns and some monks have begun starting their own schools that the local kids, both little nuns and monks, but also regular kids, can go to for free. And, I mean, it's, un- it's amazing. We know some nuns who started a school three years ago just for the little local kids, and they thought maybe 100. Now, three years later, there's over 500 kids. I could name you five schools in a 10-minute drive area that are like this. And they start with nothing. They, live all- they do it on Donna. They hire good teachers. They pay the teachers. They just rely on getting Donna every month to pay the teachers They don't even have decent buildings. They just have like lean-tos. But anyway, so there's a lot like that. And so we were seeking out some. We can't give a lot of money, but some, you know, a couple thousand dollars at each place and also maybe tell some other friends who have have greater resources. So we heard about this one school that was way out in some area, and we went, and the taxi driver who uh, we often uh, drove with, so he he knows us, he knows us, the monastery where we stay. So we'd heard about this monk who'd started this school like this. So we drove. It was really hard to find. It was a long drive. And it was, it was through like the poorest area any of us had seen so far. Um, and so we're driving through. It was really crowded, way on the outskirts of Yangon. And it was like old, um, well, they're all shacky houses, bamboo houses, built over this really fetid, swampy water. You know, and the, the houses are they're just plaited bamboo, and over this fetid water, they're just on stilts, and the floors are just like bamboo slats with big holes in them. And it was the taxi driver who was driving was saying in English, "Oh, they're so poor, they're so poor." This is the taxi driver, and it was just real. Wow, this is it. Just wasn't kind of intense. And we got to the um, the, the monastery. And the monk, so we met the monk who was doing it. He was a, a youngish guy, early 30s. Um, and he was one of these beings who just, he radiated goodness, you could say. He just seemed to be like a kind of like, we thought he was like a bodhisattva guy. He had come from another area of the country because he said, I, we, we have a friend, one of us could speak Burmese, so we could talk to him. And he said he just wanted to help the poor children. And he was educated. He had a Damasarya degree, which is what monks and nuns get who study for many years the Pali scriptures. And to, to have one of those at 33 means he's really quite intelligent and quite assiduous in his studies. And so he'd come there, and he had built this little school with 100 kids. And so he was, we were really open to listening to him and talking to him because he was radiating so much sincerity and goodness and sweetness. But he... Uh, he lacked managerial skills, I would say, <laughs> based on the state of uh, his little monastery and school. I mean, the, 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 like it was right in this really poor area, and the, the, the place was so poor. And uh, I mean, we're used to poor, but kind of just shabby. And like he was telling us how, because of all this fetid swamp right around, and in the rainy season, which is like three, four months a year, the the uh, water was this high. So he took us in the little, the little shack kind of where the, the young monks, they're called um, samaneras, where they live, like they're like seven, eight, nine, ten. And he would ha- have these young boys become monks so they could stay there with him and he could take care of them because they didn't have anywhere else to stay. But a lot of the other kids stayed at home. So he said, well, when in the rainy season, then the water's up to the level of the beds that they were sleeping on. And it was not the rainy season, but it was just such a mess, you know. And we're like, wow, this is so bad. And then the latrine was nearby, and he said, oh, yeah, in the rainy season, the water from the latrine, like, flows, you know, you get the drift. And like, this is really bad. And it was just a mess. 
And then he took us to the school. The school was right there. The school was actually nicely built, and the kids were there, and he'd hired teachers, and that was really where he'd put his first energy, you know. But the whole place was just so pitiful. And we all were, well, like I said, even the taxi driver were all going, whoa, this is so much suffering. But we were really somehow not shutting down to it. And I think because we were so open to him, to his beauty, to his sincerity, to his... And he was saying, you know, I'm out here and nobody knows I'm here, so please tell people about me because he, like all of these monks and nuns' schools, subsists on Donna. And he wasn't getting any. And it was really at the end of nowhere. No one was going to happen on it by accident. You know, um, and so when we left, and again seeing the state of the village, it was it it really made an impression. And we visited a lot of different schools and a lot of nunneries and monasteries, and seen a lot of poverty. But this just really hit us all, both the goodness and the poverty and the, the lack of skill. You know, because some of it was just lack of skill. You know, because we'd been to nunneries that were poor, but they were neat and tidy. I mean, to other nunneries that were poor, and they're just like a mess, you know, like, like my friend said, some overwhelm is going on here. So, so we left. So anyway, leaving, and I felt, uh, I could just feel it reverberating in me for a few days. So that's, that's just the openness to suffering. I'm not saying that's particularly compassion, you want to help, but just the openness. And I can see how that openness came from, from tuning into his goodness. Okay. So the next day or so, this is just a little thing, but I really noticed. I don't think I would have normally been so open. I was in the monastery where we stay, and I needed help getting filling a big bottle of water like this, and I can't carry it by myself. So it, the guy who usually does it in the office wasn't there. So the nun called one of the workers. There's always construction work going on in these meditation centers. You might as well know that up front. If you ever want to go sit in Burma, there's going to be construction work or loudspeakers or both. Just how it is. So he's one of the construction workers. And she called him over, and he was, you know, so he, he, you have to do a certain thing. You have to run the special filter and all. So he came, in, and I was just standing behind him, looking at him. He was a young guy, probably early 20s. And I could see he was so, he was taking such care, because most, a lot of times the, 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 the locals there don't pay any attention to how the water filter works. You have to turn it on and wait and do all this stuff. Because, you know, they don't need the water filter. They drink the water. But he was so meticulous and careful. And I could just, I was just standing there behind him, you know, because, you know, it's awkward. We can't talk. And, and he's kind of shy with me. So, And I saw later, I was so still really open from the experience yesterday that instead of just waiting or being lost in my thought, I was tuning into him. That's the connection, I mean, that comes, that allows compassion. And tuning in, I just saw how very simply... He was really intelligent and really caring and really knew what to do. And then we had a little nice connection. He was a lovely guy. And immediately, in a sense, so many of the young people in Burma, there's like, there's no, no, nowhere for them to go. He's really smart. He clearly doesn't have any chance to go to university. He's working this crummy construction job. It's like $2.50 a day he's earning, you know. And he clearly has so much potential. And so just that sense of that connectedness, which, you know, on another day I wouldn't have really noticed. It's like, yeah, another, another young guy who isn't really having much chance. It's a shame, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it's a shame, but there's not that, that open-hearted connectedness. And I really credit that to really being there in the pain, in the sorrow the day before. And then from that we got the idea... That there's, we, I asked the nun about him, and she knew his whole story, of course. Oh, yeah, he's really smart. He's really good. He comes from this other state. He wants to learn how to drive. And then we thought maybe we could help him, you know, learn how to drive. And then they told us about another young guy who is only 19 and really smart, and he passed 10th standard. He should be able to go to university, but he has no money. He has to support his family. And all. we got that. Well, we also have money friends gave. We could maybe support him to go to college. And it just kind of would move, you know, from thing to thing, just from the simplicity of being opened to suffering. We never know where it's going to show up, you know. So I don't know if that communicates, but that to me actually was such a simple little act of connection. And it can actually have far-reaching effects because then we just started looking around and seeing more young people. And some of them don't want the support. Some of them it's not feasible. Some of them it is. 
that one young guy, not the one I'm talking about, the one who, who was only 19, when we met with him and talked to him about, could we support him to go to college? The smile on his face was so wonderful. You know, we all just were like five feet off the ground, just, to, just from mudita, from, you know, sympathetic joy that maybe some of our friends' money could help support him to college. And who knows what will really happen, you never know. So we never know. Compassion comes from very simple little moments of connection. It can come from very simple moments of connection with your own suffering here. That's really the, the, the point that I want to make because it doesn't stop with you. When we're not, as Bankai, who was a Zen master from the 1600s in, in um, Japan said, don't set yourself into confrontation with things. And then your primary being reveals itself in its true form. So just notice when you're feeling in confrontation with what's happening now. Instead see, can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusion? Just for a moment. Just for a moment. And don't go looking for it. But you may find it happen. Looking for it, that gets in the way. How in that moment of real connection, it opens up past your own particular story of suffering and begins to see that this is the particular experience of the universal experience of pain or sorrow or confusion or loss. And that doesn't have to be overwhelming. That actually is another, the other side of seeing that we're not separate beings at all. We're not separate at all. It's my... Vincent van Gogh said once, I wish that people could understand that the boundaries for compassion don't lie where the world draws them. The boundaries for us don't lie where the world draws them. But it arises quite naturally the sense of non-separation just from touching our own suffering. This from Payment Children is quoting Stephen Levine, who writes of a woman who was dying in terrible pain and feeling overwhelming bitterness. At the point at which she felt she could not bear the suffering and resentment any longer, she unexpectedly began to experience the pain of others. A starving mother in Ethiopia a runaway teenager dying of an overdose in a dirty flat, a man crushed by a landslide and dying alone by the banks of a river. She said she understood that it wasn't her pain, it was the pain of all beings. It wasn't just her life, it was life itself. And this is Pema Chodron saying, we awaken this bodhicitta, this tenderness for life, when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. In the words of the 16th Karmapa, you take it all in. You let the pain of the world touch your heart, and it turns into compassion. Again, we don't have to try and hold all the pain of all the world. Our own pain is a representative of the pain of the world. And when we touch that, and it turns into compassion. It naturally begins to move into the pain of the world. So I'll just end with this one short quotation from Nisargadatta Maharaj, second only to the Buddha. I don't disagree with that. (laughs) Of course, I can't find it. it Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself, you are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. 
Teach me to care and not to care. And the senseless sorrow of humankind, which includes you, becomes our sole concern. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.